Amen. Thank you, Jeff. Thanks, everybody. <clears throat> Good morning, everyone. It, uh, it is so appropriate today that we come to the time of the message coming out of communion, coming out of having celebrated the new covenant in his blood. This relationship that we have with God the Father made possible through the gift of his Son. Uh, and now here we are coming out the other side of it, wondering now what, where do we go from here? And that's very fitting with where we are in our series in Ephesians, because we've spent the time talking about the first three chapters of Ephesians where Paul lays out this wonderful, glorious identity for the people of God. They're called, they're chosen, they're adopted by God. And not by anything that they've done, just strictly by His grace. They're made alive with Christ, they're raised with Christ, they're seated with Christ in the heavenly realms even now. And they are, every one of them, every one of us, a building block in the house of God, the temple of God, the people of God. We all belong, we're all citizens, here we are. And then he begins chapter 4 by saying, so though in light of all of that, let your life reflect the reality of who you are as the people of God. So if you were the Apostle Paul, and you were going to start there, and you were going to say to someone who had you know, just realized that they have this brand new identity in Christ, they're a new creation in Christ, life is brand new, we've sung about that, they've celebrated the, the, uh, the gifts of communion, and they're, they're facing outward, ready to begin the new world and, and put this new life into action. Where would you start? What would you tell them? How would you tell them to begin? Go ahead, shout out some answers. What would you say to them? Pardon me? Prayer. Prayer is good. Go ahead. How would you tell them to begin? Gospel music. Love one another. Go to church. Tell them what happened to you. Okay? Read scripture. All good things. These are all good things that we would want for someone to, to do and, and understand about living this life, living a life that, that reflects, that, that is commensurate with this new identity that they have in Jesus. <laughs> Kimberly, you don't give up, do you? Good for you. Good for you. Come to the ladies' retreat. We want that on the recording, right? So, but let's look at how Paul starts. If you have your Bibles, go to Ephesians chapter 4, and we're reading verses 1 to 6 today and talking about verses 1 to 6. Paul, or um, Jim last week talked about the hope that we have in our calling. We're going to not spend as much time on that, but I want to focus on a couple of other things in this passage. Um, and first of all, I just want to say that, that I'm using the Kevin Armstrong version today. And, and I, I thought it'd be a good time for me to just kind of, you know, put a few kind of disclaimers in there. First of all, I want to thank you all as a church for extending me the grace to use the Kevin Armstrong version from time to time. And, uh, and I want to let you know how I arrive at that, first of all, so you don't think that I'm kind of, you know, like a heretic. Um, uh, so what I do is, is I, I'm, I'm blessed and I'm grateful to be able to read the New Testament in the original Greek. But I'm not so much of a Greek scholar that, that I can really mind the depths of it. So I love to read the New Testament uh, in, in the original language because there's so much color there that gets lost in translation. 
So what I often do when I'm, when I'm looking at a passage and I'm mining a passage in my study and in my preparation, I'll study it in the original Greek. And I'll use some of the best Greek tools, expositors, interlinear, uh, some of the tools that are out there when I need to dive deeper into words, and especially the meaning between words, prepositions, syntax, a lot of those kinds of things. It all has a meaning. It all colors the meaning of the text. And then I'll look at how others, a lot more smarter than me, have translated it. Uh, people like Eugene Peterson in The Message or, or Barclay in his translation or others that have done individual translations. And then I'll look at the, at the community translations like the NIV and the NAV and the King James and others. And I'll, look at, I'll try to get a, a broad understanding of how others have understood the, the message or the passage. But what I'm trying to do is I'm trying to bring out the nuances of meaning that I see in the text that maybe get glossed over in uh, the English translation. So that's what I'm doing um, when, when I'm giving you the Kevin Armstrong version. So here's the Kevin Armstrong version of Ephesians chapter 1, uh, verse, or 4, verses 1 to 6. So I strongly encourage you, I, the prisoner of the Lord, to live your life in a manner that fits with the calling you've received, with a deep sense of personal humility and perspective, with patience that stays constant with one another in love, earnestly preserving the unity which comes from the Spirit, in peaceful harmony which is the glue. There is one body, one Spirit, just as one hope of your calling dictates. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. May God add his blessing to this, the reading of his word. Interesting where Paul starts. We shouted out many good answers, many things that we, we would believe are important to living a life that is, is commensurate, that is fitting, that is worthy, that reflects this new identity we, we have in Christ. Paul starts by giving four virtues, humility, meekness, patience, and forbearance. That's where he starts. To live a life that reflects this new identity that we have in Christ as the people of God, he says... Humility, meekness, patience, and forbearance. And they're actually two couples. They go together. Humility and meekness and patience and forbearance, they go together. They're two, they're two pairs of pairs, if I can put it that way in the language. And there's just so much depth here that we want to park here for a few minutes and just let the Holy Spirit massage this into our hearts and into our souls. Humility and meekness, he says, this is true lowliness of mind and a sense of our own need for God. That's the beginning place. That is the beginning place of living a life that is worthy of the calling that we have, is having a true sense of who we are in Christ. And this is not a false humility. This isn't something where we beat ourselves up and say, oh, I'm worthless, I'm no good, I don't deserve what God has done for me. That is a false humility, and that's not what he's talking about. In fact, in the Greek it says, with all humility, a totality of humility. What he's saying is that we have such a sense of who we are in Jesus Christ. We have no room to boast. And we have nothing to fear. Think about that. Because of who we are in Jesus Christ, we have, there's nothing we can boast of. It was given to us. We didn't earn it. We don't deserve it. But it was given to us. And because it was given to us, we have nothing to fear. That's true humility. 
and a sense of perspective, a sense of place, of realizing that that now I belong, I'm part of what God is doing. I'm part of this, this great redemptive restoring kingdom that God has brought and is bringing to the world and now I'm, I'm part of it, I find my place in it, I find my identity in it. But it's not all about me. He didn't do this just for me. He didn't do this to kind of, you know, kind of, you know, fulfill all of my dreams. No, he's, he's caught me up in what he's doing so that I can find my place in what he's doing. So I can find my true identity and have a true sense of perspective. That's what he's talking about here when he talks about humility and meekness. A sense of personal identity, who we are in Christ, and a perspective. And in patience and forbearance, This is where, here he's talking about where we patiently bear with one another. That's another way to kind of put it. And this is important because, for one thing, Paul's talking, remember, he's talking to a church 2,000 years ago that was made up of Jews and Gentiles and different people that were coming together. They had very different backgrounds, very different ideas, and there was all kinds of struggle and tension, you know, about how they were to get along and be one church. We still live that today, don't we? We still live that today. And what he was saying to them is, is he was saying, you know, and we're going to get to this, to, to, this, to the oneness in a second, but he's saying, you know, first of all, you, 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 you know who you are in Christ so that you have all humility, you have nothing to boast of, you have no axe to grind, it's not about you getting your way, set that all aside. You are fulfilled in Jesus, you need nothing else. Rest in that. And here's the thing, you know, I, I don't know how to describe that, that place of humility because, because it is such a place of peace. It is such a place of fulfillment. It is such a place of contentment. It has nothing to do with our circumstances. It has everything to do with Christ in us. And it totally fulfills us. Totally fulfills us. If you are not totally fulfilled in Jesus Christ, it's because You've allowed something else to crowd what you think about who you are. It begins with all humility and a sense of perspective. And then it stretches out to bear with one another. To say, but I'm not the only one. We're in this together. God isn't just saving me. He's creating a people. He didn't just reserve a place for me in his mansion in heaven. He found me a place in the midst of his people. I moved into his community. And it is a community. And I have to learn how to bear with one another. To stick through it with one another. To stick with one another through it all. Why does he start here? Why start here? Of all of the good things that we said, why start here? Well, because this is the beginning point. Later on in chapter 5, verses 1 and 2, you know, we'll just jump ahead a little bit for a second here to just get an arc of how Paul actually writes his letter. He says this, to begin, you know, the uh, chapters 5 and 6, he says, Be imitators of God, therefore, as dearly loved children, and live a life of love, just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and a sacrifice to God. The goal of discipleship is to become like Jesus. 
The goal of discipleship, the goal of your life and my life as followers of Jesus is to become like him. And what does that look like? It's a life of sacrificial love. It's a life of sacrificial love. How do you get to the place where you can sacrifice yourself? You have to have all humility and perspective. You have to be fulfilled in Jesus so you can give yourself away. What does it say in Philippians about Jesus? In Philippians chapter 2. And you're going to see in a second here that this is all throughout Paul's letters. This is Paul's message for the church. No matter which church he was talking to, this is his message. In Philippians chapter 2, and these are very famous passages that we know. We put them together and it says this in Philippians Your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus, who, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in the appearance of a man, he did what? He humbled himself, even unto death, death in the cross. Why does becoming like Jesus begin with humbling yourself? Because that's where he started. Because that's what he did. That's how he did it. It's how you and I do it as well. By starting with humility. This is the rubric for the Christian life. To live a life of love as Christ did and gave himself for us as a sweet Fragrant offering to God. There's just so much packed in there, but that comes later when we get on to Ephesians chapter 5. I just wanted to kind of throw that out there and let you know. This is the ark where he says, live a life worthy. He says, live a life like Jesus. Live a life of love. That's how you live a life that's worthy. Oh yeah, there's a list of of do's and don'ts. There's a list of bad behaviors in the book for sure. As there are in all of Paul's letters. And when you look at the structure of Paul's letters, you'll see that he'll often make uh, you know, a, 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 a commanding, directive statement, and then he'll break it down with lots of examples. And we're going to do that all through the rest of, of chapter 5 and those other parts when we get to that. But the interesting thing about these lists, especially the one here in Ephesians, and we're going to talk about that when we get to that, is that the way he presents it is he says, you know, now that you're in Christ, don't do this. Instead, do this. So an example is he says, okay, now that you're in Christ, how do you live a life worthy of the vocation you've been given? You know, don't, go, don't steal anymore. Instead, go and get a job so you've got something that you can give and help the poor with. And so it's not just a matter of saying don't, 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 don't. The Christian life is one of, of don't, 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 don't. That's not what he's saying. What he's saying is, look, these things don't don't fit a life of sacrificial love. These things, these behaviors, they are less than who you are. There's a better way. Embrace the better way. That's what he's saying. And he says this in Colossians, and he says this in Philippians, and he says this in Galatians, and he says this here in Ephesians. There is an overarching direction for the Christian life, and it is love. In Galatians chapter 5, verse 13, 14, he says this. He says, you, my brothers, were called to be free, but don't use your freedom to indulge the sinful nature. Rather, serve one another in love. 
The entire law is summed up in a single command, love your neighbor as yourself. So getting back to the Ephesians passage where he says this, he says, so we have humility, we have perspective, we have patience, and we're constant with one another in love, earnestly preserving the unity which comes from the Spirit. An interesting thing here is that the unity is given to us, it's presumed. We're not told to achieve it, we're not told to, to make ourselves unified, we're, we already have that. We, God's given that to us in Christ. We are one people, we have the unity, we're told to preserve it. And we're told we have to work to preserve it. We're told it takes energy to preserve it. We're told we have to put some effort into preserving it. Why? Well, he ends with this great cascade of oneness. This crescendo of the glory of God. Just as he has doxology in chapter uh, chapter 3, here here he kind of breaks out again here in in this wonderful passage where he says there's one body and one spirit just as one hope of our calling dictates. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in you all. And we can read that and it can just roll off of our lips but park there for a second and let that sink in. The oneness of God. Why do we need to make every effort to maintain the unity of the spirit that we have by virtue of being God's people? It's because God is one. It reflects the oneness of God. This is who God is. God is one. And what is it that holds that one together? It is is that that humility and that serving one another. You know that's in the Godhead too? That's reflected in in the relationship between Father, Son, and Holy Spirit too. They're not stuck on themselves. They're giving themselves away to one another. That is who God is. That is his very nature. And he calls us into that. The church is what God is doing in the world. The church is God's work in the world. The church is the visible human community that represents the kingdom of God in the world. Of course it must reflect his oneness. If it doesn't reflect his oneness, it doesn't reflect him. And if you're with me, and you're coming to the end of the page... You're going, wow, we suck at that. And we have, haven't we? We have. Why? Why is the church so disunified? Why is the church not one? Why have we sucked at that? It's because we forgot where to start. We've tried every trick in the book to maintain our unity, except for humility and meekness and patience and forbearance. The church is not a crowd of individuals all trying to work their way into a better place in heaven. We are a people on a journey together learning how to be led by the Holy Spirit and how to love one another. Let me say that again. The church is not a crowd of individuals all trying to work their way into a better place in heaven. We are a people on a journey together, learning how to be led by the Holy Spirit and how to love one another. That's who we are. And we at Forestbrook have embraced that with gusto. And we are pursuing that with all of our heart. 
That's why Eugene Peterson can sum up this passage this way. Everything you are and everything you think and do is permeated by oneness. Love that. Everything you are and everything you think and do is permeated by oneness. So what do you bring to the table? What do you and I bring to the table in this call to live a life worthy of the vocation that begins with humility and perspective and a commitment to unity? What do you and I bring? There's so much that could be said about that, but what I'd like you to do is just think about it. And it might be that we start thinking about it in all the ways that we actually don't do that well. And that might lead to some repentance in order for us to get to the place where we can see how we can do it well. What do we bring to the oneness of the people of God? To the oneness of this church? I want to leave you with that for a few minutes and then Elizabeth is going to come up and we'll talk about how we can apply that in our everyday lives. When it comes to oneness, what do you and I bring to the table? So we have this call in our lives, this call to oneness, this call to show others who Jesus is because of how we are with each other. And I don't know about you, but when I think about that, I think, whew, that's a big task, isn't it? And certainly not always the easiest of tasks. And so what might be helpful as we start is to look at where are the places that God calls us to this oneness in our lives? What are some of the places the Bible tells us that we have this call to live out oneness? What do you think? What does the Bible say? Where are we to achieve oneness? In the home, okay? Can we break that out a bit? Where in the home? Okay, husband and wife, yeah, parent and child, yeah. Where else are we called to oneness? In our neighborhood, okay, with one another. In the workplace. Are we called to oneness with each other here in this space? with our brothers and sisters that sit in the pews around us? Okay. What about those people in that other church that don't hold to the same doctrine as us, but who profess faith in Jesus Christ? Are we called to oneness with them? Okay. So breaking it out, does it make it feel easier? Or do you start going, oh, wow, okay. This is quite the call, isn't it? Yeah. So if we look at those four things that Kevin talked about, that um, meekness or gentleness, the humility, the patience, the forbearance, or sort of getting stuck in with each other, if we look at those four things as the things we're supposed to be bringing to the table, how do those things help us to achieve oneness? What do you think those things do in those places you've just identified 
to bring oneness. We have some mics. If you put up your hand, we'll run around to you. And I would just say to those of you who are younger in the room, this question's for you too. I want to hear what you think. Okay, we've got a hand right here. Uh, humility breaks down barriers. Okay. Humility breaks down barriers. Behind. Peacefulness. It brings peace. Okay. Jesus says, my peace I give to you. Mm -hmm. You can start a conversation. You can start a conversation. Okay. Yeah. Um, it's not all about us. Um, putting others first before ourselves. Down here at the front, there's a hand. It deals with all that striving to one-upmanship and to mm. prove the insecurity that underlies so much of what we do sometimes. Okay, That yeah. if we have humility, then the foundation is secure. Okay, yeah. I live by a mantra that I got years ago. Rescue the perishing. Encourage the saints, glorify God. I wake up in the morning and I say, God, I need your help. Mm. Okay. It, it's hard to fight with someone if you're thinking lowly of yourself. So, uh, you know, in those various arenas that you're in, if you're not seeking for yourself and instead you're saying, Jesus, what do you want here? Mm. You know, it will naturally bring unity because you're not saying, hey, you're wrong, or hey, I'm right, because mm -hmm. you're not seeking yourself. So when you're seeking Jesus and what he would want in that particular situation instead of you and what you would want in that particular situation, it changes the entire relationship because now Jesus is the focus and what he brings to that relationship is the focus. Amen. Yes. Joy. Joy. Yes, those things bring joy. It starts conversations which can lead to understanding. Mm. So it brings you together. It actually brings intimacy because you're now able to have conversations to understand each other better. Yes. There's somebody at the back. Forbearance means uh, helps you not to give up on relationships, whether okay. it's you know spousal, parents, or you know people you work with. All right. So it helps us to. Um, do the hard work in relationship of, of staying connected when everything in us tells us we just want to be done with that person. Okay, at the back. John says, we are one in them and you in me, that they may be made perfect in one, and that the world may know that you have sent me and have loved them as you love me. When we are one, it is the greatest tool of evangelism because the world will know that Jesus has been sent by God because his body has become one together. It is when the harvest will come in, they will know we are Christians by our love. Amen. Amen. So we have someone here and then over by Donna, if you could go over, there's a hand at the back there. Thank you. Okay, so at the front. Resting in him will bring brightness and light into a dark, desperate situation. Mm. Okay. 
So it changes that person's experience of you in that relationship. Yeah, at the back. It helps us to be kind. Okay, it helps us to be kind, yes. So we'll take two more, one over here and then the one at the front here, okay? Others feel heard and not judged, and that includes prisoners in jails and penitentiaries across Canada and includes prostitutes on the street. So there's this, that's beautiful, when you bring Jesus' peace into something, when you bring those qualities of meekness and humility, a true understanding of who you are, the person you're across from doesn't feel judged regardless of what they've done. Because that's not what Jesus does. He said, I didn't come to judge, I came to save. Yeah. I think if we have the peace and patience and meekness and humility that Christ can give us, um, if we open ourselves up to him, that we will talk less and listen more mm. and be more in tune with his spirit for okay. us. Amen. Amen. I suppose we could continue this for the next hour and <laughs> not run out of things that Jesus does um, in relationship when we choose to allow that um, humility and the meekness or the gentleness and the forbearance and the patience to be where we are in our relationship with others. It's not really human nature, though, is it? Those are not human tendencies. But when we're called in the body of Christ to exemplify Jesus, we're not asked to do that in our own strength, are we? We're asked to do it through the power of the Holy Spirit that lives inside of each and every one of us. It's when we surrender ourselves to that power it's when we choose to seek after him and to let him be how we engage with others in relationship that we find ourselves enabled and empowered by him to bring meekness and humility and patience and forbearance into every relationship. We heard a few people say that it takes your focus off of yourself when you do that. And it helps to reduce barriers. I think one of the biggest barriers that we can find ourselves facing when we are wanting to bring the peace of Jesus into relationship is the hurt, the woundedness, the stuff that happens in relationships between two broken people who are still being sanctified. We don't get it right all the time, do we? People of God don't always say the right thing or do the right thing. And sometimes that hurt can really be the thing that becomes our focus in our relationships with each other. And it's actually only through the supernatural power of Almighty God that we can address that. But whenever we talk about forgiveness, it's oftentimes hard because people think that saying, I forgive you, I choose to forgive this person, means saying, it's okay. What you did is okay. But it's not okay. If it was okay, you wouldn't have to forgive it. When our kids were little, when one would do something to the other and we'd get them to a place of saying, okay, you need to say I'm sorry, we never asked that person who had been wronged to say it's okay, because it's not okay. We taught them to say, I forgive you. Because forgiveness is a choice in response to what is going on. It's not giving, granting permission for that bad thing to have happened, to say, oh, it's all right that that happened. 
And oftentimes we end up staying in bondage because the wrongs committed against us are too great to say it's okay in response to. But this idea of forgiving others as we have been forgiven is not about saying what that person did to me is okay. It's about saying, I'm choosing to not let that be what holds me hostage anymore. I'm releasing them to Jesus to be judged and dealt with so that I can be free, so that there's more space for him in me. I doubt there's anyone in this room who hasn't at some point or another been wronged. Because we live still in this fallen world. But this is a way that we can bring more of heaven here on earth. By choosing to let Jesus deal with the wrongs done to us. By choosing to put on his humility, his meekness, his patience, his forbearance. So that we can engage with one another here with the larger church, with our families, with our friends, with our workplaces, in a way that shines Jesus. So let's ask the Holy Spirit to do that work in us. Let's go before him and spend some time allowing him to speak to our hearts. To listen for maybe the places where we need to choose to forgive someone. Not say it's okay, just choose in Jesus' name to forgive them because that's what we have had done to us. Or maybe the Holy Spirit is going to show us there's someone we need to go to and ask forgiveness from because he's shown us that in us that needs to be righted. So on the screen behind me, there's going to be a bit of a, um, an interactive prayer where we'll, there'll be a leader part, which is me, and then there will be a together part, which is you. And although there's a bit of structure to this, what we're wanting to do is actually create space for the Spirit to move and for the Spirit to speak, for Him to do the work that's needed in us so we can preserve the unity that we are called to. So let's pray. Loving Father, Jesus our Savior, Holy Spirit, the one true God, your very nature is perfect unity. You made us in your image and you've called us to be one body, your church. Lord, make us one. Everything that we are, brothers, sisters, wives, husbands, sons, daughters, friends, your children, we offer to you. Lord, make us one. Show us where we have hurt those around us. We confess in the quietness that we spend now. Please show us who have we hurt.
Together we pray, God, forgive us. Everything that we think, search our hearts. O God, and where there is offense, selfishness, pride, we confess. In the quietness, show us what we need to confess. Together we pray, God, forgive us. Where there's hurt, pain, sorrow, Jesus, bring healing. We take captive each thought and focus it on you. Lead us in the way everlasting. Lord, make us one. Everything that we do, whether whatever our hands find to do, and wherever you take us each day, to work, school, our homes, neighborhoods, the grocery store, open our eyes to see what you see. Permeate our whole lives with humility, gentleness, peace, forgiveness. May we be a people who are caught up in you. Lord, make us one. People of God, John tells us that if we forgive our, confess our sins, Jesus is faithful and just and will forgive you. So we are forgiven. Jesus said, by this will all people know you're my disciples if you love one another. This is not rocket science. None of this is new to any of us. We just need to do it. We just need to do it. I want to close with this passage from Colossians, Paul's letter to the Colossians, which has so much overlap with what we're saying from Ephesians. Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Bear with each other and forgive whatever grievances you may have against one another. Forgive as the Lord forgave you. And listen to this. And over all these virtues put on love, which binds them all together in perfect unity. Aim high. Aim for love. Live a life like Jesus. He'll do everything else. God bless you and keep you. May you be filled with the Holy Spirit. May his power flow through you. May his fruit abound in you. And together, may we show the world God's kingdom. Amen.